0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world changing ideas and debate.
1: Um, Good afternoon, uh, everyone, and welcome to uh, today's public event. I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA. Uh, It's my great pleasure to welcome you here for what um, we hope will be a very kind of special uh, debate. Uh, We've put this together um, with our great friends. Das Progressive Zentrum, the Progressive Center, which is an independent think tank based uh, in Berlin. Um, the uh, center promotes innovative politics as well as economic and social progress. So we uh, have a lot in common with them. We're delighted to be co hosting this event with them. Today we're going to be discussing um, how to place climate change and sustainability at the front and center of both domestic and European uh, politics. The 2019 European elections witnessed a surge of support for green politics across the European Union, with commentators and activists heralding a new green wave, um, with Germany's, the Greens, capturing the zeitgeist with a doubling, a doubling of their vote share from an already high base. But how can... Progressive environmental, uh, progressive environmental agenda make an impact when it's up against key voter concerns about a whole range of other issues, whether it's public services or health or crime or the economy or migration or whatever. So joining me to discuss uh, these issues uh, are Francisco Brantner, who's uh, MP, Parliamentary Whip and Spokesperson for European Affairs. Um, Alliance 90 and the Greens in Germany. I don't know quite what that means, but you can explain it to me. Uh, I know the Alliance 90, but I don't understand. Uh, and Jonathan Bartley, who's co-leader of the Green Party in England and Wales, and a councillor in Lambeth. Very good. Um, why don't we welcome them? <laughs> Uh, so the way things are going to work is that we're going to talk for kind of half an hour or so and then we're going to open up the room to you, but you know, let's see how it goes. If any of you kind of want to put your hand up or uh, intervene earlier than that, then, then feel free. Let's, let's, let's uh, have as dynamic a conversation as we can. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about, Francisco, is, is how you've done so well. It's 40 years since the Green Party was formed. Um, and now there you are, the second party, in some measures, even the first party, uh, in Germany, not just at the kind of fe- federal level, but in, in the different uh, lender across the country. So how did you do it:
2: Yeah, thanks for um, inviting me, and thanks for um, joining this event. Uh, Yes, we just celebrated 40 years, two weeks ago, actually, and I can always remember the age of my party very well because it's my age. Um, So (laughs) um, almost to the date, so it's uh, very convenient. Um, But how did we manage to do so well until now? Of course, there were ups and downs. It's not a linear history where you can say, you know, it was clear from the beginning that that's where we would end up. Um, there were some
1: quite serious scandals at once. At yeah, we had, you know, we
2: were we were kicked out of parliament. We returned, so it has been, yeah. you know, really ups and downs. Um, but I think the strength of the party from the beginning has been that it has been a unifying different social movements. Um, at the creation of the Green Party in Germany, uh, you had three movements: it was the feminist movement, uh, the environmental movement, and the peace movement, human rights movement. <coughs> and those three joined up to say we don't have any party representing us right now, we want to create our own party. And then you also had some very radical left-wing militants, uh, the Marxist-Leninist uh, who were at the beginning also you know, part of all of this endeavor. And when we were looking back two weeks ago, such a diversity of characters I was really, you know, I was like, oh my God, how did they manage to stay in one room, to run party and not fall apart? Um, And I think that's been part of the success that they managed to bring very diverse people uh, together and and join forces for common causes. Uh, And the second factor, I think we have been very strong on a local level. We have been very anchored in local councils, mayors, which gave us a lot of credibility in terms of, uh, you know, if the Greens win, they do well locally. You can see it, and the successes uh, locally you could feel. And so the Greens were no longer a threat, because you knew, oh, but he's a good mayor. He's doing a good job. Why shouldn't they do a good job on the state level or even on the federal level? Uh, And then we were lucky to often have good leaders. I think we should not underestimate it. To have charismatic good leaders, uh, which we have for at the moment right now. And then in contrast to the UK, we have a electoral system that helps, um, of course, as well. Uh, and we also have an electoral system which never forced us to choose sides, uh, not to align with the Social Democratic Party or Conservative Party. Uh, and the slogan of the Greens at the creation was we are not right, we are not left, we are ahead. Um, and that sort of remain the very strong foundation of our party. We are ahead. Uh, and and that's possible in our electoral system, which is much more difficult uh, in a winner-takes-it-all system. And maybe one uh, last thought, because I think it's part of our success, is that um, when we were in government, or where we are today in government, we are in 11 out of 16 states. There's no other single party in Germany that is part in so many governments than the Greens, the CDU Conservatives are participating in fewer governments on a state level than we do as Greens, um, that I think we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, so it's a quality of people also that you get to do a good job. Um, and Alliance 90, maybe to right. explain, uh, is part of, we've celebrated 40 years of Greens and 30 years of Greens Alliance in 90. Uh, Alliance 90 were the civil rights movement in East Germany, toppling at the time uh, the communist regime. And they, those civil rights activists, democracy movement people, they had created this Alliance 90, because after 89 for the first elections, Alliance 90. And they ran for the elections in 90, 1990, um, and then joined up with the Greens in 1993. So it's... Um, <sighs> because there was no real Green Party in East Germany, and the Social Democratic Party sort of had um, an equivalent to Conservatives, but not us Greens. So for us, the interlocutor was the Civil Rights Movement, and they were our partners already during the Communist regime. Um, And that has changed our party as well a lot, because it has firmly set freedom as the number one value. Interesting. Um, So that's been very, Mm. very important for our history that, Mm. you know, we always say in Zweifel für die Freiheit, in doubt for freedom. Uh, And that's been deeply enshrined by the Alliance 90 Mm. people.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. And and, um, uh, obviously I'm going to be coming to Jonathan in a few minutes and asking him to kind of reflect on this. But let me just explore a couple of things Mm. more. Um, So for those people who don't know, there are active, indeed leading members of the Green Party in Germany who might be classified within the German political spectrum as being centrist or even slightly to the right of centre. I mean, obviously your centre is different from our centre, but, but there are politicians who might view themselves as being green small c conservatives. It
2: all depends on how do you find conservative. Of course. Um, so we have, for example, I'm from the state of Baden-Württemberg, uh, and since 2011, we're the number one party, so we are having the prime minister of Baden-Württemberg. Um, and Baden-Württemberg is the state that is economically the strongest in Germany. It has all the car industry, etc. so it's quite important. And Winfried Kretschmann, he, he defines himself as conservative, but in a way of saying, I want to conserve this planet, I want to conserve um, our... Homeland. I want to conserve the way we live. I want to conserve our social fabric. Uh, so he has a different definition of conservative, but he would also define himself as conservative. But he doesn't fit into the political spectrum of CDU as conservative party. I think he, you know, he really says I'm. He's a, a very um, a, a Catholic believer, mm. so he's very strongly active in the catholic church uh, he's part of the central committee the central committee of the catholic church so he has this um, religious uh, founding of his uh, environmental activism
1: I mean, it already feels to me, just sitting here, that the possibility of being able to adopt such an eclectic and subtle position in Britain is completely inconceivable. Um, uh, I'm kind of tempted to give over this entire session to just how much... The fact that Germany is basically a nicer country than the UK, but um, I'm going to avoid sliding too much into that. I don't want to explore the second point that you made, which is about the importance of the fact that Germany is a more devolved country. This has enabled the Green Party, whilst having a core coherence and a core, the centrality of the environment, yes. to be have di- a different kind of brand yeah. in different places? Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah. Um, as I just said, Baden-Württemberg, my state. We have, with Winfried Kretschmann, we often have different messages and different attitudes than, let's say, the Greens in Berlin. Uh, they, you know, uh, when they say, let's expropriate the landowners... Winfried Kretschmann wouldn't say that. Um, so, but we can have do do, different well, I mean, how, messages. Uh, how,
1: and how do you deal with that? And does the does the media not get onto you? I mean, if that was to happen in this country, there would be a kind of the media would go, "Oh, this is completely incoherent." And Jonathan would be dragged onto the TV and told that you know his position was untenable. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you?
2: I mean, the how, good thing it's it's um, the same for every single party uh, that you know you have states that have powers to decide on housing rules and we have them to decide on education, on uh, home security, etc. So we can say that's what we do here in Baden-Württemberg, that's what we elected for, and the folks, our colleagues in Berlin, they say, but I'm elected for something different. Uh, so it's a t- I think it's a diversity and attention which if you manage it well, it can really help you. We have had phases in our party history where it was not managed well and where that really diminished our party across this uh, federal entire system. So it, this diversity has to be managed well, and we invest a lot of time in managing it well.
1: That's interesting. So, so me- I spend
2: a lot of time, because I'm part of, as you said, a whip of the, in a federal uh, yeah. ex- uh, parliament, Uh, So that already gives me that role of making sure everybody votes the same way. Um, But I also i am a charge in making liaison with the state government in Baden-Württemberg and making sure that we don't go too far apart, at least that we keep it under one message.
1: So, I'm coming to you in a second, Jonathan, but tell me more about that. I mean, I'm fascinated by process. So is that to do with, is that uh, largely an interpersonal challenge for you, just making sure that you keep people friendly and talking to each other? Is there, are there kind of processes that underpin it that make sure that you're... Because most other parties, and we can certainly see this in Britain, Kind of their ability to contain different views has diminished, actually. They've become more intolerant of diversity within their the, 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 the party.
2: Now We have set up a lot of processes for making that happen. Uh, and we always go to, you know, we say, so what's our common goal? And then we can debate what ways we go there. And we might diverge on the ways as long as we are sharing the same objective. Um, so we have, you know, often we are very much aligned on where we want to go. Let's say climate neutral 2040, and the way Berlin goes might be different than Baden-Württemberg, um, but we do agree on the same goal. Uh, so that's often where we do then say, okay, so what's the same goal? And then we discuss it uh, different ways. Uh, and we are, impor- it's important for us and also to have the process of coordination uh, across the states, with the federal level. By the way, also with the European level. Uh, so we have it across the levels. We have a lot of phone conferences for that. I spend a lot of time <laughs> on the phone. My daughter, when she was asked a couple of days ago in school, "So what's your mother doing?" And they, she was saying, "Talking." Um, <laughs> you know, and I think it's right. I, she sees me a lot on the phone.
1: So Jonathan, I, uh, uh, I warned you I was going to say this, but you're not just, I imagine, green by politics, but you're now green with envy. Uh, listening. <laughs> Uh, uh, to Francisco. I I want you, if you can, to distinguish three kind of elements of this. What are the things uh, that the German Greens are doing, which are applicable? You you uh, uh, as kind of co-leader of the party would say, look, we should just do that. We we should learn from that, and we should do it. What are the things which are simply irrelevant because they're to do with the fact that Germans got a different electoral system or a different tradition and so, however much you might envy it, it's just not importable. And what are the trade-offs? What are the choices which maybe the German Greens have made and that maybe you think that the Greens in the UK need to make if, they are going to wi- if you are going to widen your Okay,
0: You have to remind me of those questions. There's a lot in there. <laughs> um, I mean, the elephant in the room is the electoral system. I don't think we can blame it uh, for everything, I, but I do think it's an important factor. When you look at what happened with UKIP um, a few years ago, they were riding up at 12, 13, 14, 15% in the polls, and they never made a breakthrough into Westminster. The only MP they got was a defector. They never won a parliamentary election. Um, they did get a lot of councillors, but then they didn't have the infrastructure in place, and when their poll ratings went down, they lost all those councillors again. So I think it's very interesting to see just because you hit 14, 15, 16% in the polls and indeed won the European elections, um, it doesn't mean that you are guaranteed uh, political success in you know, over a number of years. And the hard lesson for us, I think, as the Green Party, has been a very painful lesson, has been to learn to act as a political party, <laughs> uh, to actually target to win under first past the post. And when we we doubled a number of councillors before the European elections last year. In one election we doubled the number of councillors and in 90% of those seats it was where we had worked for two years and we had targeted. Don't be deceived that it was because of a green surge off the back of what was happening coming down from Northwest Europe. It was because we'd finally got it uh, a few years ago that you've got to target to win and you've got to put in the infrastructure. You look at the Liberal Democrats prior to 2010. I remember when I was working in the House of Commons in the 90s they had nine MPs and then they went up to I think something like 50 MPs in pretty much one or two elections. So by 2010, they had 50 MPs. And how do they do it? They did it by building up their councillor base, targeting to win, and then winning those constituencies. And there was no shortcut. And they did have the the kind of Nick Clegg surge in 2010, which helped them uh, to get over the line and win those MPs. Um, But it was very much putting in that party infrastructure now the big parties the conservatives and labor they have those constituency parties that have developed and matured over years and years and years they have the political knowledge they have the institutional knowledge and when you get new activists in 2015 when we had uh, well, i think we quadrupled our membership in about a year and a half it went up to 40 50000 members and suddenly we had all these new members coming in very similar to the corbyn surge but we couldn't cope because we didn't have the institutional memory we didn't have actually the expertise to impart to these new people who then wanted to be out on the streets campaigning on air pollution and not actually taking part in electoral politics. You know, they joined the party out of instinct and values but didn't understand electoral politics. And we couldn't teach them about electoral politics because we didn't understand electoral politics in 2015 well enough. We hadn't got that uh, history of having councillors and holding seats and winning elections. And so you know, there's a lot of maturing. So you know, we have been stunted in our growth. Um, And we haven't made... I think, when did you win your first breakthrough to national parliament? Was it 1990?
2: No, much earlier. Much earlier. Yeah, 83.
0: 83. So we got our first MP in 2010. So, you know, in a sense, we are 20 years... Behind you.
1: OK, so I understand that, and that's a, I, I don't think anyone would, would disagree. I mean, I think the statistic is that, you know, the, out, the number of votes to get a Green MP in the last election was 840,000, and the number of votes to get an SNP MP was 26,000. So, you know, obviously there's, a, there's an issue there. Um, but what about the ideological question? You know, broadly speaking, and I know this is crude, you've got your kind of... When it comes to people who care about the environment, you've got your kind of national trust perspective, which is more about kind of countryside and tradition and all of that and, you know, care about climate change. But for them, it's more local, it's more national, it's more visceral in a way. It's more, to, as I say, to do with, with, with kind of, a, kind of a, uh, the, the British countryside, as it were. And then you've got your kind of anti-capitalist, green, you know, extinction rebellion kind of side of things. I mean, they don't co-mingle in the British green movement at all, do they, really? And, you know, is thats that... Is that Impossible because of our culture, or do you think that there are some lessons that can be uh, about greater tolerance and a wider appeal, which can be learned?
0: I mean, they don't apparently not in the membership, but in the voters they do. So we did a lot of analysis in twenty seventeen of where our vote came from, and it was made up in twenty seventeen uh, a third of people who had voted Green in twenty fifteen, a third of people who had voted Labour or Liberal Democrat in twenty fifteen, and a third of people who had voted Conservative in twenty fifteen. And so we, we this is for the British election study, we paid for this research, it was quite a shock that we had so many conservative wow. voters come over to us. It's good. Which so, is great, um, because you, if you're gonna win seats, you've gotta win those conservative voters. Um, but not in the membership, you're absolutely right. But a good way of looking at it is also, a, you know the values voters? Well, hang on,
1: that's an interesting question. Yep. So you know, a, a huge problem for politics, not just politics, trade unions and all sorts of other things, is, the, is activist capture. Yep. So activists, zealots, enthusiasts, you know, God bless them. But not the same as the general public, who aren't all that interested in politics and who are more pragmatic. And you know, it, how do you are your activists different from your voters?
2: You know, our membership is quite diverse, uh, okay. and as I said from the beginning, we have had the, those people who came because they wanted to protect uh, the wood next to their okay. city. And you managed
1: to maintain that diversity. Yeah. So how? You know, isn't that something you need to do is to, is to cultivate a different group of people who will come to your green conferences and stuff like that and say, look, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's no reason why capitalism can't be green, you know, and cars are okay as long as they're electric. And, you know, and by the way, I do enjoy a beef burger. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was uh, quite funny at lunchtime. You, know, you can see how this is being set up when we were having lunch. And, of course, Jonathan's a vegan. Um, and Francisca says, I do love meat. So I just thought this is a kind of, we've got an encapsulation here uh, of these differences. But, but yeah, I- I- isn't that something you need to be trying to do? Um, and not just for yeah. your
0: party, not just for your party's sake, I, but for the broader message. I yeah. want our, one of the frustrations for me, and I can see our, our chair of our executive is sitting in the audience and our chief executive is sitting over there. So I'm going to be very careful what I say. <laughs> but the, one of my frustrations for the party is we have these wonderful policies about inclusion and diversity and embracing difference. Uh, and they're great policies, they genuinely are. But when it comes to the practice of the party, uh, we aren't as inclusive anywhere near as we should be. Um, we are too white, we are too middle class, uh, we, and we don't do, embrace difference politically um, right. either. And it is a real challenge. My answer to your question is, yes, I would love us to be a really inclusive party um, where people who support the National Trust, where farmers can come, you know, where people who care about the land, who have the experience of the land... Um, and I, I've got older relatives who are exactly those kinds of people um, but can I see them coming to a Green Party meeting no I can't I can see them possibly flirting with voting Green in an election but not actually playing an active part but they've got so much to give partly is our demographic as well we know our demographic is you know the younger you are the more likely you are to vote Green um, so you know the older you are the less likely
1: well, that's good that's very intru- any
0: tips Francesca as, as,
1: as Jonathan and embarks on the journey of having a more intellectually and politically diverse activist base? I
2: I think, you know, because I don't want us to seem as German Greens as completely, you know, without firm values besides environmentalism, which is also not true because we also managed to establish us as the force that is fighting the extreme right. Um, And I think our, um, you know, very clear commitment of all of us, be it the farmer, be it the, you know... Extinction Rebellion activists that we also have. Um, what also combines them next to environmentalism, climate protection, is a firm commitment to an open society and a European yes. commitment. And I think that's also something that is important, what is the second bridge that brings those people together. Um, I was really a, interested in your point a, about... Sorry
1: to interrupt, because yeah. I, I don't want to lose it. I was really interested in your point about freedom. I mean, that's quite yeah. interesting, Jonathan. Is, I mean, I suspect if you were to poll your activists and say, what is the critical value to you? I don't think freedom would probably appear terribly. Now, I understand the reason why. So Germany has got this interesting historical advantage, which is because for the eastern part of the country, freedom was such a radical demand. It hasn't been a radical demand in countries.
0: It would be so. a value that they articulated, but actually in the core of our policy, we are the most libertarian party. You know, we are radically libertarian, and any A-level politics student will tell you. you know, they do that basic thing where you do left-right right. continuum, but authoritarian-libertarian Uh, Continuum, and you have to plot where you are. And the Green Party operates this left, uh, libertarian sector, which no other party uh, occupies. But I think you're right. It wouldn't actually be articulated by the member. But
2: that's very important for our membership. Mm. That's very firm commitment. And that was very important over the last couple of years with the refugee crisis, when you had the Social Democratic Party not really being sure, are we now anti-refugees, are we pro-refugees, or are we somewhere else? And the Conservative Party wasn't sure, should we go and flirt with the extreme right? Should we embrace them? Should we distinguish us from them? And we were really clear. Um, and I think that also, that clarity helped us over the last couple of years.
1: I want to move on to a couple of other topics before we open it up. Um, you've met, we've mentioned Extinction Rebellion. One of the interesting things about environmental politics, of course, is that arguably, and certainly probably in this country, the, the main energy is not within the political system, but it's in civil society. So different challenges for both of you, in a sense. I'll start with you, Jonathan. You know, that relationship to Extinction Rebellion, school children's strikes, you know, Viganuary, we were talking about earlier. What, what is, the, how do you think about your relationship to the wider environmental movement? Um, in the sense that these are kind of single issue campaigns, they don't have to think about the kind of challenges of actually having a coherent platform or whatever. How does that relationship work? And, and in a sense, why is it that it appears to be more, the more, so much more energy in civil society than there is... I mean, I'm sure if the Green Party had organised the campaign for veganism in January, it would have been nice. Would anyone have noticed it? But, so, but it's kind of come from here, and now it seems to be taking over most of our young people. So.
0: I mean, you know, electoral politics isn't sexy. <laughs> it isn't fun. Um, it's, it's hard graft. We should make it fun. We should try and make it sexy, but it is, is much uh, more fun to go and do direct action on the street. Um, We kind of uh, see ourselves as the political expression uh, of those civil society movements and groups, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, Extinction Rebellion, school strikers. That's where we think people should- uh, Even though Friends of the Earth told people to vote Labour in the last election. Yeah, and we're still having words about that with them. Um,
1: Maybe you should get Francisco involved in in the process for that conversation.
0: (laughs) Um, But we've always seen direct action also. as as It's in our philosophical basis as part of what we do. And I was arrested with Extinction Rebellion. I was banged up in Brixton cells um, for a while Um, and got arrested with George Monbiot on an issue of actually civil liberties when the police um, passed the notice which banned civil protest in in Trafalgar Square. We thought this was a violation of uh, civil liberties and went and got arrested. Um, we've never been afraid of that, Caroline Lucas arrested fracking, there was a big court case. But you haven't
1: managed, have you, because if you think of the history of the Labour Party, the the Labour Party starts in civil society, starts in trade unions, starts in workers' education, you know, starts out there, and then there's a view which is, well, we need a parliamentary wing, Mm -hmm. but you've not managed to kind of make yourself the parliamentary wing of the wider environmental movement, I mean, do you think that's possible or do you think it's simply because campaigning is so much more fun than electoral politics well, I mean, it's, an un- it's an unbridgeable divide
0: No, I, I think for a lot of the people who work for those organisations who are members of the organisations they do see the Green Party in an ideal world as their natural political expression but then they are squeezed at elections strategic. because of the, okay. the system You know, think about when it all happened a year ago when Extinction Rebellion school strikers were at their kind of height mm-hmm. our poll rating was hitting 6, 8 10%, uh, and even very close to the general election it was on that, but then you could see it get squeezed right down. We still doubled our vote, but it hit, you know, 3% in the general election. And now, look at the polls again, we're back up again. Right. But it's just because the election happens, because the media attention is then focused on the, quite a presidential system, a two-party system, the poll rating gets squeezed right down. Um, and so I think, you know, people do see us as a natural political expression, but they get kind of bullied into voting for the least worst option.
1: And Francisco, what about you? Because it's a very different set of issues for you, which is you've got people running things. I mean, you're very credible. You are a party of government uh, at all levels. Social movements can be a right pain in the ass when you're actually having to make difficult decisions. Sorry, excuse my uh, uh, British phrase. But um, uh, when you're trying to make difficult decisions and trade-offs and keep business on side and all this, and you've got this kind of idealistic movement outside. So how do you manage your relationship with with civil society and the ferment that comes up, particularly from kind of young people who really want to see a transformation in society?
2: You know, I, I think it's a real challenge, and a precondition is to have clarity of roles. Uh, so to say, yes, totally, and thank you for the, what you are doing. That's your role, to push and be radical. Um, our role is to make, get majorities for that politically in the parliament. Um, and if it works well, if you manage that relationship well, they do help you because we're never in a majority. We always have to, to you know, to negotiate with a coalition partner. It gives you weight and leverage mm. over, to negotiate with your coalition partner. Um,
1: and does it give you in a funny kind of way cover, which is that because you're never in a majority? you can always explain the fact that you're not as radical as the activists would like because you're having to compromise with other parties.
2: And then the question is, is the compromise good enough to agree to, or would it, is it so bad that you rather say, now we quit government, right. because that's not acceptable? And that thin line to push as far as you can uh, with the might and all the weight of the civil movement uh, And, you know, going really the extra mile, that's a difficult job. And we had this very recently, we had in Germany, uh, the government had proposed a national action plan on climate, and they introduced a price on uh, CO2, which started with... um, They had foreseen 10 euro per ton of CO2, which is nothing. I'm like, you can forget it, basically. Like, you don't even have to introduce it. Um, And you're not in the national government. As I said, we're in 11 state governments and we had internally very difficult debates on should we now go uh, negotiate with the government and trying to improve it, uh, and what will be the Fridays for Future response if we don't get a super result? Will they say, you're the traders now see, you also, you can't manage well? Or will they, you know, see that we have done everything and we will go real re- step ahead? And we managed to end up with a uh, 25 years starting and next year, 50. Um, but, and it was still a bet. How will Fridays for Future react? Will they tell us you're, you're such losers or will they say at least it's better than what the government had originally proposed? Uh, and it depends a, a lot and on how do you communicate with them, how do you communicate it publicly. Um, so in this case it went well and, and we would certainly as Greens not have been able to push for those changes without Fridays for Future in the streets.
1: It's one of the things we talked about uh, uh, over lunch, which is interesting, is that you know in this country, as, uh, as Jonathan was saying, it has now received wisdom to be a minority partner in a coalition is one step away from death. Uh, in Germany, the Greens have been consistently the minority partner in coalitions, and have then done subsequently much better as a consequence. So that's a kind of interesting conundrum. I want to ask you one last question before I bring in uh, points from the floor. So let's go much broader in terms of where we are in relation to the response to climate change. I think for many people, it's a kind of bewildering picture because there is not a day when you can't pick up a newspaper and find an article that tells you about you know, some new corporate commitment, some new national initiative, some new technology which might help us, and then the next day you open the newspapers and it's Australian bushfires and it's Donald Trump, and and it's really hard to kind of see where this is overall, whether you should hope, whether you should obviously you always have to hope but, but I'm kind of interested in where you think it's poised and what will determine whether or not globally we do the things that we need to do. I'll start with you Jonathan
0: well, well, The big thing for me, what's happened in change in the last year is there was received wisdom which is if you hit people with the reality of it it's too big people will get scared, they'll disengage they'll be apathetic so we can't do anything about it and along came Extinction Rebellion and the school strikers and Greta and said, the "Planet's burning. What are you going to do?" And that just changed the whole debate, I think. And now it is this massive, massive thing. And now I think, you know, Extinction Rebellion, one of their articles of faith is to tell the truth. Their first demand, and we are telling the truth about it. And I, I am, I am really worried. I am, um, I am, I am, I am shit scared. Genuinely, yeah, I. I I, I always
2: thought the British are so polite. (laughs) It's the RSA. We don't care. Yeah, (laughs) I
0: I want to give hope, and I believe that what people need more than anything right now is hope and a vision. But the scale of transformation that is going to be needed, in order to do what we need to do to stop cataclysmic uh, climate events and and cataclysmic climate uh, change and global heating. Is huge, and when we came up with this manifesto for this election, you know, we were the first ones to launch our manifesto. We were talking about borrowing 100 billion pounds a year, uh, you know, uh, for 10 years to have this huge shift. And we were making the links, which I think is really important in people's minds, about why, and I know the Greens don't have a commitment to a basic income, but why we need to radically transform the welfare state to provide the security for people as we make this transition. Because if we're going to make these huge changes, you're going to have to make sure that people are secure. And therefore, we need to reform and and reimagine the welfare state as an empowering tool. Um, And we put together this package. And this is the kind of transformation that we need. We have to get away from this Blind addiction uh, to credit-fueled growth. We have to tackle the fact that the economy is now three times bigger. We have three times more wealth than when I was born. We have the wealth. The alternative to just going on growing and growing and growing is to redistribute that wealth. Now, you can call it left-wing, but that is what we have to do uh, you know, if we're going to make the change. And we feel like we're telling the truth. And there's a bigger stake. You know, we can have all the electoral success we like and compromise uh, as much as you like, but if we don't avoid the climate catastrophe, then what's the bloody point in getting elected to a government if you aren't actually making so, the difference? So we, feel we have to say it, and, and shifting the agenda for us in this country has been as important as getting the electoral success. So
1: it, but, but it's interesting, I think it's very interesting because there's always been this debate, hasn't there? Uh, uh, in the environmental movement, between the argument that says that focus on, and it's actually the same in, in um, areas like the development movement actually, do you focus on the harms? Do you focus on the crisis? Do you focus on the starving? Do you focus on the bushfires? Do you focus on the, despair, the, the panic and fear? Or do you focus on the upside? Do you focus on, well, actually, no, a, a, a green economy would be a happier economy, the well being would be better, you know, technology can you know, be used to, to, to make real progress. It feels as though, partly because of Extinction Rebellion and, 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 and the school children's action, that, that the emphasis, and also what's happening in the world, has moved more to the negative as, as a way of mobilising people. And I noticed that Donald Trump, who, whatever he is, is not stupid when it comes to understanding where to try to draw lines. Yeah. The line he wanted to draw at Davos was about this. Yeah. He wanted to say, this isn't, you know, forget all this, it's optimist versus pessimist. It's me, cheerful old Donald versus that rather miserable woman, uh, girl from Sweden. So, you know, is there a danger, uh, Francisco? That, that, if we, that even though it may be in the short term that people are mobilised by fear, no, it never that it's not enough? And I noticed you over lunch again, one of the things you said positively about your part of Germany is that it's been run by the Greens for 10 years and you've had strong
2: economic growth. And we're proud of it. Well, I know. <laughs> Um, No, but it depends on what kind of economic growth you have. And and I firmly believe that, you know, if we go on this um, apocalypse storytelling, we all should disappear. And living means emitting emitting CO2. The only time we don't emit CO2 is if we're dead. So if you go it all the way to, you know... um, to the radical, then you are life opposing. Um, and we are firmly loving life and trying to make it a better life. And one of the, our oldest slogans of the Green Party in Germany is, um, mit grünen Ideen schwarze Zahlen schreiben, which means taking green ideas and making, uh, writing, you know, getting to black numbers at the end of the month, so to have economic success. Um, and so we have always been in proposing uh, a new definition of growth, um, an indicateur du bien-être, a wealth, well-being indicator of redefining what growth is. Uh, and making it more inclusive of environmental questions, but also social questions and caring, like care work, etc. Uh, and that has been so strong in our party that now we do, as German Greens, for the last five years, an alternative growth index for Germany. And it's become as you know, publicly known and broad in the media as the German National Growth Index. Uh, so people go and check and say, OK, that's the national government statistics on growth, and now let's check the green one. Uh, even though we're not in government it's not you know but we've done it with scientists etc and i think that's sort of our approach and we and i feel like when i'm locally, in uh, you know in my heidelberg constituency and i'm telling people look imagine the city we just take out the cars we take that space for our kids we take it for coffees we take it for us we you know we don't need that space for cars we can just you know, regain it, uh, take the idea we could have uh, energy, uh, you know, on our roofs and on our windows, we can just, you know, live in a different place, it gives you so much more energy. Um, And I really think that in the end, if you want to have that positive change, you have to go by ideas that are quick, easy to implement, um, and that are socially inclusive. Um, And that's why, of course, you need money, you need funding for it, Um, but you need to have it positive. And I always say, you know, what does it help me locally in Baden-Württemberg to stay there if I tell people not to use the car and I don't have a running train system? Uh, They will, you know, I don't want to cut on mobility. I don't want people not to see their friends ever again in Argentina. You know, I want to... I've lived on four continents, I love traveling, and I want to be in touch with my friends in New York. Um, And I want this... our system to get me to New York without producing CO2. And have a sausage roll. And have a sausage roll on the, you know, but good (laughs) meat. And that's my expectation. It's not to get everybody to become better human beings, to stop being in touch. but we have to get this done. And I'm convinced that we can get there if we put in the resources, if we put the legal constraints necessary for that. Um, uh, and I think you know, that's what we've been doing in Baden-Württemberg. We have been investing a in lot uh, in these new technologies and new ways of, doing, um, of running also transport, mobility systems, etc. And, and we have been, for example, remobilizing train... Um, how do you say like tracks that were demobilized in the 80s and 90s. Uh, And, you know, we went back and just worked with what was there before. We rebuilt bridges, which were torn apart before. And so we have invested really a a lot of public money, uh, and I think it's very worthwhile. And maybe on what you said, hope, you know. I always, uh, it's one of my dearest quotes that I always have in my pocket. It's Vaclav Havel who said, I tried to make it in English. It's like, hope is not the conviction that something ends well, but the firm belief that what you're doing is the right thing to do.
1: So I'll give you my favourite hope quote. Yeah. Which is better, I think it's better. Okay. <laughs> my favourite one is, it's not hope that leads to action, it's action that leads to hope. Hmm? Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's take some comments. We'll take kind of three or four comments and then bring... Uh, uh, Jonathan and Francisco uh, Francisco back and we'll try and do that a couple of times so um, let's start here uh, if you can tell us your name and keep it brief that would be fantastic
3: great so I'm David Wood chair of London Futurist where on the roadmap for eco-politics is the electoral reform question because mm-hmm. it sounds like you didn't put much focus on that it sounds like you're talking more Jonathan about extra parliamentary activities and changing the landscape of ideas rather than uh, getting uh, more Greens into Parliament, which sounds like it'll take a long time.
1: OK, hold on to that. Um, let's go uh, here at the front row. Hi, uh, hold on, wait for the mic. Hey.
0: I'm Kate Walder, I'm a farmer and a councillor and I just wanted to bring you some good news from the shires which is all of the parish councils that I represent um have in the past month also uh declared climate emergencies and um farmers are harder farmers follow grants you don't have to win the argument with them you just have to provide the funding
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay uh and then let's go there's a kind of cluster of three hands all over there so let's take those three and then i'll bring our two guests back in
3: thank you i'm grant lewison um the problem, I think, is that the International Panel on Climate Change says that we've got
1: to modify very substantially our way of life. We are consuming several Earth's resources at the time. That is not going to be politically popular. I don't think that a single political party by itself can possibly hope in a democratic society to get the change that you want. This has got to be agreed by all the particular particular political parties together as to what is possible in order to spell out there will be advantages for some people and there will be disadvantages for many other people, but you've got to face up to these because society is going to have to change very radically if we're going to save humanity altogether. Thank you. I mean, I would say because this really, this whole session has been kind of Germany, Great Britain, oh dear. But um, <laughs> I would say one of the innovations which has been quite successful here, which was created by the Labour government, is a climate change committee which generates reports which are taken seriously and which polit- politicians across the spectrum feel. That, I mean, very few people rubbish those reports. I think so. That is something which is having some impact and, and makes similar arguments to, to, the, to the arguments that are made by the gentleman.
4: Okay. Um, hi, my name's John. Um, Work as a brand manager within FMCG, so within industry, so perhaps the enemy, but um, I've always seen within industry that the way to growth, I've worked from some, some very good companies in Unilever and Danon is through aiming for green innovations, reducing your waste. And the argument often made against being green is it damages the economy, but and I don't see a lot of green uh, politicians within at least our environment within Great Britain at least making the argument that no, it's the way to energy independence through renewables and it's the way to it's the nec- next economic revolution through in, th- in industry and through inventions and to be a world leader so I don't know why I mean, I guess my question is why is, why is that argument not made more powerfully by politicians within the environment Great, and then I think next year Yep
3: on? Yeah. Um, sorry. Ed Gemmell, um, founder of Believers Against Climate Change. I'm also on the board for the Scientist Warning in the UK. And I stood as an independent candidate in the election with only one policy to reverse climate change. <coughs> Caroline Lucas, Greta Thunberg and President Macron have said, and I think we should be listening to them, but they didn't do all the story, that the house is on fire. They didn't tell us, though, the rest of it, that the house is on fire. We've all woken up. We've gone next door to try and wake up all of our loved ones And when we finally got them out of bed and the smoke is around in the room, we've staggered towards the stairs. And as we've got to the stairs, we've got down, we're gathering our children under our arm or we're taking our grandparents with us and we've gone to the front door and we've gone to open it. But it's shut. And then having found that shut, we've gone into the living room to try and get out the windows. And we put our hands onto it and they're shut. So at that point, we turned around to face the fire in the house and we tried to put it out. We'd thrown the plant pots on it. We've put on the water. We've done everything we can to put it out. And if we're lucky, we put it out without anybody getting injured. Now, we've got a massive, massive problem. Politics and the environment currently are getting totally mixed up and the focus is gone. The last time an existential threat in the UK reached the beaches of Normandy and we took a war footing, what we did then is we moved 75% of our industrial capacity to deal with it. We spent 47% of our GDP... Can you, can you come to a, a point? Yes. You had said it was a debate, not a question.
1: No, I know, but these are the people doing it, having the debate. So if you, could, if you could kind of get to the end of your point, it would be great.
3: Right. And, then, um, and, at the, and the other thing on it was we created industrial miracles, which cannot be seen at the moment. And the Green Party's policies on 2030 show that, that we're trying to do too much of it in this, in this what we can imagine now. We have to go for a target of 2025, um, be aggressive and ambitious. If we make it... The rest of the world will come and buy it from us. They'll buy our software, our hardware, our engineering skills, our mechanical skills and everything else, and we'll possibly see the conservative uptake in, it, or upgra- up, uh, take in our economy that we're looking for. Okay, thank you. Um,
1: so uh, don't feel the need to respond to, to all those points because I'd like to bring the audience in one more time. But Francesca, any kind of particular points of that you'd long, uh, f- you, you've heard that you want to pick out?
2: I would like to pick up on the, you know, economy um, and environmental question because my state is the big car, Uh, you know, we have uh, Daimler and, you know, it's huge car industry. And we have been making the argument that, you know, the car in the future will be carbon neutral. So that's certain. What is not certain is if we will still have a car production in Germany, yes or no. And I go to my constituency and say, I want in 20, 30 years still to be mobility production in our state in Baden-Württemberg, and it will only be there if you go finally ahead and make it carbon neutral. Otherwise you will be gone, and I will be responsible for loss of jobs because you were too slow to go ahead of the curve. And we have seen that in other areas. For example, I read the newspaper article this morning and I had to, I was like, oh, you know, Brexiteer guy, whatever, saying that finally we can get rid of this REACH, which is the regulation on uh, chemicals. Um, In my constituency, I have BASF, BASF, which is a huge chemical company. They were lobbying very hard against the REACH regulation and saying, we will all drive out of business if that comes, and we will lose ground, international competition, etc. If you go to BASF today, they say, thank you for REACH. It gave us the international loop ahead uh, and advantage, and probably we would be out of business if we hadn't had REACH. Um, so I can only warn your country to go backwards. Um, but, you know, and that's the same company, BASF, that now finally got it and said, okay, now we have to go into chemistry that's carbon neutral. And if we manage to be the first one ahead there, we will be the market leader. And if we lose out, you know what? We will be gone. Um, and I think that's more and more companies in Germany, and I think in Europe worldwide, do understand this. And I tell you, those that don't, they will be out of business. Um, so, and we, you know, we have seen that in my state in, in the last nine years. You can see that those who have made wrong investments, um, they go out of business. Like ThyssenKrupp did a terrible investment, um, Latin America going into very dirty coal, etc., mining business. They lost six billion. If you speak to the current leadership, they say it was the largest mistake to go back into that dirty, coal business in Latin America. They regret it deeply. So you have big German old companies that did wrong decisions and lost billions. Uh, so the track record is quite evident. Um, and so, I, but they don't get there voluntarily often. So you need state leadership and you need uh, regulation and investment. Uh, and then you need the money to help them to retrain their employees Um, and that's part of the success uh, we made in Baden-Württemberg is to really offer them okay if you go this way we accompany you we help you uh, and we go it together and we do the same with the farmers we started to have and that's where the money comes in Um, in Germany we have this big debate between environmentalist and biodiversity and then the other side the no farmers as you probably have in your country. And on the national level we have a terrible polarization. It's scary um, and it only drives the far right. Um, and we have said we cannot allow this to happen. We have to bring them around one table and we will not leave the room unless we have found a common agenda. And that goes to the democracy and consensus uh, point that was made that you have to have a sort of consensus, and you have to put in a lot of effort to build it. It doesn't happen automatically. And does it need more parties? I don't know. I don't think it's about political parties. It's about having a consensus among the concerned actors. And it's about politics has the job to bring them around the table and agree on where they want to go. And that can be done by one party, but you need to have the actors, the state, you know the, in this, the farmers, the biodiversity people, you need to have them all around the table, and that's what is the reason of doing politics is to organize those processes in society yeah.
1: so Jonathan, I often find that industry leaders are more progressive, and more radical on this agenda than politicians. Are you? Is, it green, is Green Party policy, policy, are you zero growth? Is that your no, party view? No,
0: not at all. I mean, okay. you know, the whole, addressing the question about the economy, the whole flagship policy was this Green New Deal. So you're not opposed to economic growth, then? Not at no. all. It's, it's about saying, you know, where does that growth come from? I mean, what we were right, proposing okay. for renewables was massive growth. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, in terms of, you know, we wanted to put in 26 new major train lines around the country, scrap HS2, Um, You know, that could put half a billion pounds into 140,000
1: cities. I don't want to go back to the old debate in a way, but there's quite a strong anti-capitalist strand, it seems to me, within the the, the Green Party. I mean, so this conversation, what Francisca's saying about reaching out to business, engaging industry, and and also I'm kind of interested in the post-election period as you think about your next tactic, because you can't just sit around for four and a half years hoping there'll be a change in the actual system. Will you be doing more to reach out to industry?
0: Yeah, um, certainly will. I mean, part of the problem is, Often the block that we have over nuclear, for example, is you know come up against the unions. The unions are often the block on bringing about the change. And so you know that would be if I do a radio interview and I'm talking about Hinkley C, uh, they'll put me up against someone from the unions. You know, not even another political party, even though all the other political parties committed to nuclear and we aren't. Um, so there is a challenge there. Um, we're thinking though bigger than industry. Uh, we're thinking right across every sector of the economy, and this is one of our big messages. Um, you know the aspirational point, the hopeful point. I think is so important. You know we, we did in this election. And I'm sorry the the message clearly didn't get through, but we were not saying we've got to beat people over the head uh, to get them to change. We were actually saying this is an opportunity to create three million good new jobs. To transition to clean uh, up our cities to give people warm homes to give us cheaper energy bills cheaper transport bills the opportunity to not you know, have to buy a, a massive investment in a car but have decent public transport sure. like they have in germany yeah. to do the school commute to do the school run uh, to, to do the shopping um, and saying it's about giving people those choices and options Great. um can i just come back on the, the very briefly because i'd like to take one more round point. of questions? Yeah, yeah just i mean again over the last three years Finding that roadmap to electoral reform has been crucial. Mm. So the Progressive Alliance idea um, was scuppered by two things in 2017. That's working with the other parties. One, Labour have never put a commitment to electoral reform in their manifesto. So you can't do a deal with them because they get into government, they won't change the electoral system. You know, it's business as usual. The last time they had it was in 1997 when you were with your mate Blair and there was a commitment to a referendum on changing the electoral system and he never delivered on it in that 1997 uh, manifesto. So we got this terrible AV, which wasn't proportional, referendum in 2011. There's no appetite for a referendum on it anymore. Uh, No appetite for a referendum on anything. Uh, So, you know, what you have to do is have a majority of parties who have it in their manifesto in order to have the mandate to bring about the constitutional reform without a referendum, and that requires Labour. You know, that's the route. That's the only route. There is another another route, which
1: is a some kind of deliberative process around what we need to do with our constitutional constitution. And this yep. government is actually committed to a constitutional review, so who knows? <laughs> who knows, let's hope. That, I, know, I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I Pigs might fly, yeah. Um, mm. Let's have three last points, one, two, three, but let's please, please keep them brief because we're nearly running out of time and I do want to bring the panel back for a closing comment, so over there, yep.
3: Hi, my, my name's Neil Wallace, I'm a fellow of the RSA, and work in this area. Um, Chris Packham raised this issue on BBC2 earlier this week. Um, I think the programme was called 7.7 billion and counting. Um, David Attenborough, Jonathan Porritt and others have have raised it, but it doesn't um, form a mainstream discourse here. My question really is, have Harry and Meghan done more to mitigate the issues that we face by uh, avowedly sticking to uh, a two-child family than any kind of environmental politics has done up to now? Um, a second thought on this is, does it take people with um, a different way of viewing the world, um, Chris Packham and Greta are both well known to have Asperger's, um, a different way of viewing the world to, uh, to show us the way um, out of this problem?
1: I'll, I'll just focus on the first question, which is, isn't population control part, part of this and have Harry and Meghan, before they disappear done a, a good <laughs> deed by saying they're only going to have two children because of, the, because of that concern. Right,
3: quickly. Yep. Uh, very, okay,
4: very briefly. Um, I'm shaking here because you're still talking about growth. The only sustainable growth unsustainable consumption is stuff that doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, but I want to ask a quick question about the Climate Change Committee. They've got a call for evidence at the moment um, for the six-carbon budget. What sort of things you should the people be asking for in terms of the equity angle and historic emissions? Okay.
1: All right. Very good. And is, is there, I'd like another woman. Is there another woman?
4: Oh, no, no. I have to take our partners from uh,
1: Progressive Zentrum. Sorry. Sorry. I just made myself very unpopular with somebody who doesn't like me already. But um, there, and then we'll go there, and then we'll finish. Yeah.
3: Hey, Floyd. I, I work for the um, Progressive Centre. It's a think tank based in Berlin. Just a very quick question. You explored um, the relationship between what's happening on the streets and um, kind of like the performance of the Green parties across Europe in the polls. Um, so Joe Kayser, who is the CEO of Siemens, a major kind of like manufacturing giant in Germany, offered Luisa Neubauer, who is the figurehead of the Fight for Future um, movement, so the equivalent to the Extinction Rebellion, um, a seat on the supervisory board. Um, should the green parties in Europe do the same, offering um, people who are kind of like behind these, um, you know, protests in the streets, and um, do the same, and give the next generation a more prominent voice um, in the politics on the green? future of the green politics and then finally
2: mine's really quick actually and it's really short um, um, I just saw that Rory Stewart's trending for saying that we um, should be planting trees in Regent Street so I just thought I'd open that one out
1: this is a question about planting trees in a particular street I'm not going to ask you to respond to that one um, but Jonathan you can, you can respond to that so uh, you've got four minutes to respond to any of those points and make a final closing comment Jonathan you first You've got two minutes each.
0: Okay, let's pick up that point. We haven't touched on it really, but I think a shift in power is absolutely crucial. It is the route to bring about transformation and the change that we need. So yes to bringing in activists into political parties, absolutely. But I would like to see us radically rethink the way we structure every institution. We need that big devolution of power even more so than they have in Germany. If we're going to get the radical change that we need, it's got to be empowered from the bottom up. And this is, again, another thing that didn't come across in our Green New Deal. To get the rapidity of change, we have to trust people. We have to create the conditions from the top to allow uh, uh, the Tories, annex the, the the word unleash, join uh, the election, but I, we originally coined it. Let's go unleash the potential. Uh, when you look at just what happened with the last Labour government and solar, you know, when you had incentives put in with feed-in tariffs, uh, suddenly there was an explosion in the solar industry, and we could have become a world world leader, there's that phrase, exporting our technology, because people just jumped on board. It just made sense to have uh, clean uh, solar on top of your house. You're making money. Uh, you're getting cheaper electricity. It's doing good for the planet. Why would you not do it? And suddenly businesses are getting involved. Everyone's doing it. And then the government came along, Tory government, and pulled the rug from under the solar industry. We lost jobs. We lost our place in the world. Now. Think about that across every sector of the economy, the government creating the right conditions. Hmm. To, to get that kind of change, we're going to have to think very, very uh, smartly and cleverly from the bottom up. And then there's that libertarian you know, philosophy uh, that's got to underpin it. I would love to us to be saying that more. Um, it will put us on the side of small business. We, I think we are the party of small business, um, but it doesn't. Sit, the message, again, hasn't got through.
1: And in, and in single words, does, does limiting population growth need to be part of the green agenda, or is it an irrelevancy? Uh,
0: it's not an irrelevance, but I don't believe in limiting population growth. I think global equality is the thing to strive for, which brings about what you need. And trees in Regent Street? Yes. Good.
1: OK. Uh, you don't have to answer the trees in Regent Street question, or understand about Harry and, and, and Megan. but uh, over to you, um,
2: On the population policy, I agree with Jonathan. I would always say, for me, population policy is a feminist approach that I have to, not an environmentalist. I want to empower every woman on this planet to have a choice Uh, and to have to write over her own body, that's what I'm fighting for. Um, And when it comes to, you know, how do we involve uh, Fridays for Future, which is sort of the German climate young movement, I'm like Luisa Neubauer, who you just mentioned, as a member of our our party, of the Green Party, and she's featured at at every single Congress we do have, Um, so I don't even know how much a broader scene we should offer her. but we, of course, are trying to reach out to convince some of uh, the younger generation to run for parliament uh, and to be part and enter the democratic system. Because I think the the hope we have is that we can rejuvenate our democratic system, our parliamentary system, at the same time as we do strengthen climate protection. Uh, there are many who run around and say you can only protect the climate if you go to an authoritarian-style China whatever. I'm convinced it's a you know it. We can do just the opposite; we can strengthen both um, and that 's why I uh, firmly believe that uh, it all depends on how you define growth and you can have a very positive de- definition of growth i want to you know if we if we ca- count um, for example, in our German growth report, as we do it as the Greens, so the well-being report, we do count time uh, you spend with elderly people in, in, in their houses. You know, today what goes into the growth index is if they have given them a ve- um, um, an, injection. an injection. That's what counts for German growth. Uh, but it doesn't count if I hold your hands and speak to you. That doesn't count. That's absurd. So if you do count it differently, you know, I'm very much in favor of growth.
1: Great. Um, so uh, if you're, and I'm imagining a lot of you are, <laughs> motivated by this uh, urgent agenda um, and you're not a fellow of the RSA, do think about getting involved. Our strongest network of fellows is our sustainability network, which has got over a thousand fellows and other, fellow, and other people involved in it. Two of our big projects at the RSA, one is about food and farming, um, and uh, a com- fundamental system shift in that area. Another one is around moving to a truly circular fashion industry economy. So uh, it's a big issue for us, so do find out more about um, the RSA, and if you want to stay around, do visit our Watermel's Cafe uh, downstairs for uh, lunch or coffee, um, and uh, the, the staff members who can tell you where to go if you want to stay around and continue the conversation. Uh, but it's been an absolutely fascinating hour, I think, so please join me in thanking our guest speakers, uh, Francisca Brantner and Jonathan Bartlett. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this
2: podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.